Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey, David. We got David Beckett here on Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. So for those of you guys that do not know what Dub is just yet, Dub is a video communication platform that allows people to quickly record, share, and track videos. We have integrations with Gmail, LinkedIn, dozens of CRMs, really builds trust, streamlines communications, and helps us to grow our brand and grow our businesses. So grab a free account at dub.com. Now, that said, I want to get into it with David here because David has some really interesting experience and a very interesting background um, as a TEDx speaker and then also as an author and then also as a sort of an architect and coach of pitching, as I understand it. So, David, I'd yes, love to have right. you explain your background and um, kind of uh, what your purpose is. Sure. So I've been coaching startups for the last uh, six years. Actually, I began by coaching startups specifically. And it evolved into various things. And what you find with startups is they have to pitch in one minute, three minutes, five minutes. So they have no time at all. And I learned a kind of a method to help startups build their pitch, to manage the time pressure, manage the audience pressure. And uh, that method works for uh, companies, for people who are working in a company, who are in an innovation project, but also anybody who's trying to sell anything, who's trying to uh, pitch themselves or, or pitch a product. And, uh, you know, the one biggest macro trend in the world is people have no time. And uh, so a pitch absolutely fits with that trend. It's all about speed, getting to the point and finding out if people are interested and then get into the details later. So how did you come up with this? What was your kind of inspiration or your catalyst for getting into this specifically? Well, you know, I have a corporate background. I worked for Canon for 16 years. And I, wow. I went from being a marketing assistant to a country director. I did over a thousand presentations. And I had a kind of a reputation for being good at presentation. But then six years ago, I started working with Startup Bootcamp. And I started seeing uh, these startups pitching in one minute, three minutes. And instead of this kind of long intro and uh, the slow build up to the story over a 30 minute period, and if you're lucky at minute 28, you find out what's going on. Instead, it was a pitch which said, okay, this is who we are. This is what we do. We're solving this massive problem, this multi-billion problem. These people are already buying for, from us. Let me tell you how it works. And in the first 30 seconds, you find out some dynamite information. And I, I thought, wow, this is a fantastic new way of, of presenting. And uh, I think this is at the time. But what I did was work, I've coached over 900 startups now, and I spent working with people who wanted to pitch and then talking to people who listen to pitches and try to find out, okay, what do you like? What don't you like? What do you want to hear? What don't you want to hear? What should they talk about? And try to match these two together and give them some tools to be able to talk with each other, actually. Wow, you've coached over 900 startups. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yes. That's yeah. incredible. So you, you must yes. have heard some pretty terrible pitches in your life. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I've also seen some some pretty great ones. Um, every now and again, someone comes to you for help, and they've just got a dynamite pitch to start off with. But it is difficult. You <laughs> well, know, they probably come to you because they need help. <laughs> well, that's for sure. And even the ones, you know, sometimes you find people have got very high standards. They just want to reach the absolute peak and they're already good. 
But quite often, you know, people don't get help with this. We don't learn this in Europe, especially. People never don't learn this in school or university. So the key is getting some tools that you can actually use. You know, a lot of people have got things to say about, oh, you should be yourself or be authentic or, you know, just tell the important stuff. But that doesn't really help people. You need practical stuff to do so that you can build habits, build a kind of a, a standard way to tell so that you can then go on to be more authentic and be more yourself and so on. But you just need to get to a certain level where all the, t- the boxes are ticked and professionalism is in there. And then you can go on to be authentic and to improvise and so on. But for most people, just to get through is it, it's hard enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, my biggest complaint with respect to pitching and kind of early startup communication, getting early ideas out, early business ideas out, is that it typically goes to some sort of a sphere of a network, close network, a sphere of influence, maybe a Facebook group, maybe friends and family. And being supportive is sort of presupposed in that environment. And I think what happens a lot of the times is that we put something out there, whether it's a business or an idea or both, and then we get feedback from folks and people say, hey, this is great what you're doing. I really appreciate this is awesome. Keep going. Don't give up. And you get a lot of that kind of cliched feedback. And even though I think it's, it lifts us up and I think it gives us some positivity and affirmation, I, I think at the same yeah. time, it's not real harsh feedback that the real world is going to give you. The people that pull out the credit exactly. cards, the investors that pull out the checkbooks. And that's the yes. feedback that really is, I think, the most valuable data. Um, can you speak yeah. to that? Yeah, definitely. What I do in my workshops is I pair people up And I give them tasks. So, for example, there's the classic network event. You have to go to a network event. Someone says, what do you do? And in America, people are pretty good at answering that question. But in Europe, especially, people are just not ready to to answer it. So what I do is I give people three minutes to write that down. Then they have to say it out loud and they get feedback from somebody else. And that feedback will be what will you remember most or what stood out most? What did you not understand and friendly advice to make it better. And the fact is, we all want to find out what, what we're doing right. So that's the, the positive stuff. That's the bigging up bit. I think that's important. But equally, most people want to know what to do better. There's very few people who are saying, I've got this, and uh, I don't need any help. Just tell me I'm doing great. Most people really want to improve. And mm. then I say friendly advice to make it better. Not that they have to be, you know, say, oh, you're doing fine. It's really about the spirit of the of the feedback. And I agree that, you know, an investor will not hold back. They will say, I'm sorry, this sucks. This is no good. Don't waste my time. And they, they will. Well, I mean, they've, they've made TV shows about this where yeah. the entrepreneurs are the laughing stock of entrepreneurs and the judgment and the wrath and the, and the scorn, the comedy that happens from a bad pitch or even sure. a mediocre pitch just for pure content's sake. <laughs> Well, I must say that those shows are entertainment, so it's always amplified, but there's definitely <laughs> truth in it. And I've also pitched a couple, a few times for, you know, I have a, a couple of startups myself. So I, I've been pitching a, a method of automating the, the pitch process. And one of the investors that I know very well said to me, look, David, you and I know the pitch is finished. So where's your product going? The pitch is basically dead. And, and you know, you get that thrown at you in the first, you finish your three minute pitch then a well-known investor throws that at you and you have to deal with that. You have to be ready for that. And I think it comes a lot with getting into your story, getting connected to why you started this, what you were actually trying to solve, 
not what you built, but what problem are you trying to solve? Why you believe it matters and understanding what the metrics are, why, why what you're achieving, what you're not achieving and being ready to handle the, uh, the criticism and, and the, the harsh questions. You know, that's their job. They don't put money into uncertainty. They only put money into conviction. And to help build up conviction, you need to take some stages and just drill yourself to get to the stage where you can answer all those questions. It just takes a lot of work. Well, you mentioned a couple of interesting things there. You mentioned uh, this idea of uncertainty and conviction. (laughs) You know, there's this great paradox that I think a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from, and I've definitely suffered from this in my life, which is, I need to go full-time in order for investors to give me money. I need to have a product. I need to have revenue. I need to have proof in order for investors to give me money. There's all these requirements that happen. If you don't have those, if you don't have a product, if you don't have sales, if you're not full-time, the answer, you think at least in your your mind that the answer from an investor is going to be no, it's not, you know? And uh, I think that's a really struggling thing for a lot of entrepreneurs because you know, they have a lot of passion, you know, maybe they have a full-time job, maybe they want to go pursue something, sure. but they're not able to quite do so. So this chicken and the egg problem, this capital products kind of sales conundrum that I think a lot of folks suffer from, how do you recommend that folks can really solve that problem? Well, I think the first step is to ask yourself, do you really need money from an investor? Can you build something that, that gets off the ground? And, and this is actually what other investors tell me. They Quite often they ask the first question, do you actually want money? Because the first thing about getting money from an investor is you bring on a business partner. And maybe the reason you want to do your own business is because you don't want to work for a boss. But as soon as you bring an investor on, he's not your boss, but he sort of is a little bit. So it changes the dynamic. You, you can't just make decisions yourself. So I think the starting point is to try to get something working. And that might be at nights, it might be, you know, weekends. And that's the deal, really. And, uh, you know, I speak from personal experience. You know, I have young kids, I have a coaching business, but I'm also building a startup. And I do that at nights. I build it, I build an app, I have content, support my customers. I've got an online course. I don't do that in the day. And that is just how it is. You know, I think the investors would like you to sleep and live in a cardboard box until you've got, you know, 100,000 revenue. And then they can uh, start putting money in sometimes. And I, I say that sort of as a joke, but there's a little bit of truth in it. They would like to see you get through the di- whatever difficult times you need to get through to get a product off the ground, get some traction moving, and then come to them for money. And I think there's a lot of benefit in that. You know, you can get a long way. You can get some customers with no money, and you can get some traction rolling before you go to VCs or go to, uh, to angels to get, to get money. So my advice is normally, okay, try and build something, connect with some customers, get some people using this thing, whether it's free or for a tiny fee, and just get people using it, find out what they like, find out what they don't like, and then go pitch that rather than, hey, I've got an idea. Because mostly investors want to know, how did you engage with the, the potential customers? What, what are they telling you? Uh, have you managed to sell anything to anybody? I think that's the starting point. Then you're in a better position to ask for money. I heard an investor once say to someone, if I give you money right now, I will consider it as a donation, not as an investment. Because you don't have a product, you don't have revenue, I don't see the conviction. I don't feel like I'm going to get a return on my investment. I feel like there are so many better places that I can put my $100,000 into. 
twenty thousand yeah. dollars, two million dollars, whatever the number may be, it's irrelevant. There's so many better places, whether it's Amazon stock or Apple stock or Facebook or God knows what, right? And I think what's interesting about that statement is that from the entrepreneurial perspective, is that you think and you really truly believe this, and it's not a bad thing, it's probably a good thing, but you truly believe that you're gonna change the world and that what you're working on is gonna ultimately be the biggest thing. It's gonna be the next unicorn. Yeah. And I think that maybe foolishness, which of course we have all felt, is I think important. And I think that you have to have a little bit of that. But yeah. at the same time, I think from an investor's perspective, I think there's so much more seasoned. They have seen so many deals. They have seen so many failures. They have endured so many failures. Any professional investor has probably made dozens, if not hundreds of investments and probably has lost 90 plus percentage of those. They probably don't talk about those yeah. when they're playing poker and they're at the bar and they're at the restaurant and at networking events. They probably not mention that. They mentioned that they invested in Lyft or Uber or something like this. But that yeah. said, there's a lot of failure around this entire industry. What is some sort of insight that you can give into, you know, I, I guess I should say to provide entrepreneurs with this idea that what it looks like from their perspective, from the investor's perspective? Yeah, a typical investor sees more than a thousand pitches in some shape or form a year. Mm. And they might invest in three or four companies. Now, those pitches might be uh, a cold pitch. They receive a one pager through the email or a, a LinkedIn or something like that. Um, they normally will actually look actively at about one third. So there will be something, and quite often investors tell me, uh, if they're introduced by somebody that I know, then I'll, I'll pay attention. So that's not the only way, but that's, that's a good way. Um, so getting introduced by somebody that knows the investor is a relatively fast shortcut, but it, what it buys you is attention, as in, they will look at the deck or they'll look at the two pager or whatever it is you send them. Uh, it doesn't mean that they will do a meeting. Then they take a certain number of meetings per year. And that might be for first meetings, anything between 80 and 150, depends on the investor. And based on those meetings, they will do, again, another minimal percentage with follow-up meetings. And they will end up with three or four investments per year. And another point of view to take into account is that Investors tell me that of the 10, say they invest in 10 over a couple of years, five of them will definitely go out of business on average. And at least a couple of them will simply give them a plus or minus what the money they put in. Then they're hoping that a couple of them will give them two to three X and one of them will give them some kind of exponential X. And that's the reality. Now, that sounds pretty horrible odds. And of course, you know, in one respect, it is. But in another respect, it is what it is. And there's a lot of things you can do to cut the odds. Like very simply researching, is this the right investor for me? One guy I, I talked to, they're going to invest between 500,000 and 2 million in software. So if you have a hardware product and you're looking for 300,000 or 5 million, he, he's not your investor. It's literally a waste of time for you and for them to send them anything. Try to talk to them because... They will never invest in your product. Um, getting the research done will narrow the odds really dramatically. And if I ask, what are the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make? I ask investors this regularly. They often say it's just lack of preparation. I say, you got to be kidding. You know, they can't come to your meeting and not be prepared. He said, no, no, no. They have a lack of preparation in research of which investors match. When we meet them, they're prepared. But the pre 
preparation is is normally weak. So I think those odds are horrible, but you can narrow them down dramatically by just honing down on who's the right investor for the kind of product that we need. And you can find that on their websites. Got it. Okay, so I have a couple of specific questions for you. And by the way, I, I screwed up my math a little bit. I think that if investors are looking at a thousand deals per year and then are investing in three to four deals per year, that's yes. a 0.3 to 0.4 percent conversion rate on the number of deals that they look at. So, um, yeah. Okay. So just a little bit of math there. So, but it's still pretty horrible. Odd. It's dismal, and I got to tell you, it's dismal. Yeah. That's that's not a conversion rate that I would want to get into. I'd I'd want to somehow no. 10x that. And I think that there are ways to 10x that. And I think that that's definitely. probably the most important thing that we can do. So we should definitely get into that, because um, I have my perspective on that. And of course, sure. I'm still I'm still a student at this. But uh, so my specific questions are: so number one, what is the prospect of emailing or contacting investors cold? I don't have access to investors. I live in some remote place. I don't live in Silicon Valley or LA, Boston, Chicago, New York, or somewhere in Europe. I'm from some little Timbuktu town. I don't have access. And then my follow-up question is that if I do speak to someone that rejects me and that says that this is not part of my investment thesis, what can I do at that point? How do I, quote unquote, avoid the wastage of 30 minutes or 60 minutes of my time? How do I get an introduction? Should I get an introduction? Is getting an introduction from an investor that rejected me, um, you know, a death sentence? How can I maximize my efficiency with respect to this type of call? Yeah. So as I say, I think the first thing is the research getting, you know, razor sharp on who do we need to speak to and doing the research. It's, it's relatively easy today because, you know, can find everything on the web. So that's the starting point. Then secondly, cold email is not impossible. Um, what I would do is send them a two-pager rather than a full deck. Uh, a two-pager is is relatively unobtrusive. And it's easy for somebody to just open it up, have a glance through, try to work out if it's something of interest. I think if you send a, a 33-slide deck, it, it, they're just not going to read it. So in terms of cold connections, that's a great way. But I do think, you know, LinkedIn, if someone's connected on LinkedIn and you know somebody's connected to them and, and they can connect you, that's going to get you that bit closer. In terms of rejection, you know, I've had investors who say, I love it when people come back. And again, if your product area is different to their portfolio and where they're going, then okay, that actually the best thing to do is avoid that conversation in the first place. But you believe that this could be a good investment for them at some stage. You genuinely believe, if I look at their portfolio, my product, my concept could fit really well. It fits in line with their, their strategy, their planning. Keep going. There's no harm in coming back. And, and they love it because it's all about persistence. You know, in the end, uh, there's a lot of talk about being resilient and persistent. And that's all fine, you know. If you if you keep getting knocked back, that's really hard. But there's definitely some truth in it. I think if uh, getting a knockback by an investor is not a death sentence, it's the key is to get as much information as possible. What is it you don't like? What is is it that makes you think this is not a, a business for you? And uh, is that something that you can fix? If it is, then do that. If not, on to the next one. And I think be a bit selfish about how you manage your time and, and who you're going to speak to, because, uh, yeah, there's always a limited amount, amount of time. You don't want to waste any 30 minutes or even five minutes. You know, I hear about this philosophy, this 
a lot of entrepreneurs kind of pursue this. They say, you know what? We're just going to build our product. We're going to build our revenue up. We're going to bootstrap this. We're going to yeah. do what we need to do. We're going to have nine to five jobs and then our five to nine second jobs. And when I, when I say yes. five to nine, sometimes I don't mean five p.m. to nine p.m. I mean five p.m. to nine a.m., which means there's very little sleep it. or no sleep. Yeah. So, you know, what is your take on this idea of, of you know, saying we're, we're not going to raise and that's not our function. That's not what we're going to do. And we're going to try to bootstrap this, what we're doing now. Obviously, every business is different. And, you know, when you think of commercial professional investment, most of the time, not all the time, you think of either technology, software, hardware, something proprietary, there's IP. You know, if this is a small business, this not, might not be appropriate for investors. At that point, you might have to go to the bank, you might have to get a loan, you might have to get your, you know, take money from your own savings. So I think there's a lot of different kind of stipulations or disclaimers on this type of a question or a convo. Sure. But I'd love to, love to get your kind of general take on the prospect of, of bootstrapping and when a person should know that they should do that. You know, there's yeah. an old adage, never use your own money, always use other people's money. Um, that, that's what are the two rules of business. Yeah. It's never use your own money and never take no for an answer. I think someone told me that. Yes. Well, it's both great advice. I think it's all about what your goals are. And if your goals are take on the world, then money will come in and, and there will be a need to raise money at some stage. Because in the end, to scale stuff, it just takes time and money. And time means people. So I think it's just really difficult to take on the world. I think it's possible to build a 1 million, a 5 million, even a 10 million business with bootstrapping, maybe even more. There, there are examples, but they're very rare. Um, I do think to create a living with a, with a decent product, which is a software type product, is definitely possible. I know people who are doing that. But if the goal is not just get yourself a job that you sort of manage, but more, more take on the world, Be, create something amazing, create something really big. Probably at some stage, the money will be needed. I do think there's a lot to be said for the learning that comes from bootstrapping and getting used to living with next to nothing, You know, just not wasting money. And one of the dangers of raising money early is that you, you don't get into those habits and, and that means you become very inefficient with money because you just there's no pressure to be efficient. Mm. So I think the starting point is, what are your goals? What do you want to achieve? If it's really take on the world, the money will be needed at some stage, but maybe you can get somewhere. And again, I think investors like it if you've got somewhere through bootstrapping. If you can generate revenue, even small revenue, through your own efforts, this is a big plus in the eyes of the investor. That proves that you've got what it takes. And I think the people who are going very early without really any customer attraction or any even customer engagement and asking for money, that's a big ask. It's increasingly rare to get money. It's not impossible, but it's, you know, those, odd, those horrible odds that we said, they get much worse if you've got no traction, no customer engagement. You've done very little to actually build something. You're asking money to actually build something. So I think you know, bootstrapping has a lot to be said for it, but up to a point. That's good advice. I once heard that uh, the first professional investor that comes in, and when I say professional, I don't mean mother, father, aunt, uncle. I mean professional mm. investor, an accredited investor that comes in who has invested yes. in dozens, if not hundreds of investments. When that person decides to come in, writes the check, and the check clears and the money is in the bank, that is your first proof of concept 
that is your first validation of your business. What is your take on that? There's definitely truth in that. It's a bit like the, uh, the book industry. You know, you can bootstrap books. You can print yourself. You can edit them yourself. You can, you know, it's, it's easy today to publish a book. But there is something of the validation that comes from having a book published with a publisher. And I, I think you can apply the same logic to getting money from an investor. You know, investors are very careful with what they put money into. Publishers are very careful with what they, they put money into, too. So someone's got a, a book that's published. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are much better than somebody who's self-published, but it is a validation. I think the same thing goes with investment. Just because you've got investment doesn't mean it's a certain you know, it's going to be a certain big thing, but there is a validation process that's gone through. There's a certain amount of, you know, due process that's been taken by those investors. People don't put money into stuff that they don't believe in. So, uh, you know, and quite often I meet uh, startups that have raised in the past and they're giving their pitch. And at the very end, I mean, I can remember very specifically a team mentioned of a five minute pitch in the last minute, they said, we've already raised 600,000 euros. And I thought, well, they've raised 600,000 bucks. And, and, and honestly, I thought this was a terrible idea. I thought the product was a really bad idea. But you can hear, feel your brain changing when you hear someone say, we raised a load of money for this. It, it does make you think, well, hang on. I did, maybe I didn't get it. Maybe I misunderstood this product and I need to think again. So I, I think there's definitely validation of getting money into the business. Um, it does help. It can also help confidence. The only th issue, the caveat is just don't forget it's always a, another business partner and they have an opinion. And that opinion might need to be taken into account uh, at a time when you don't want to, actually. But uh, mm. definitely money in, yeah. money in is a validation. Yeah, you know, at Dub, we have sort of a unique founding story some time ago. And the way that we raised money was through sales. So we actually had uh, access right. to a couple of opportunities where, you know, we had early adopter revenue come in. And it was a chunk of change in a very short amount of time. And it was, it was tremendous right. because it was proof of concept and it was validation and it was showing strong customer demand. Um, and then, of course, that capital... Uh, went back into the business to be able to invest right. into the technology and into the marketing. And of course, we do a lot of content development. And that experience that I did, it really has changed the DNA of the company because I think in a couple of ways. Number one is that by really focusing on the validation and the paying of money to get access to the tech that we're building, it forces us to sharpen our pencil. It forces us yeah. to make sure that what we're building is truly what people will not want, but will pay for. I think that's a yeah. really important distinction. And then I think the other thing is customer feedback because our whole platform is based on customer feedback. People have been providing us. We have received, I think, over 7,000 messages now since we started and across all of our channels. And those yeah. messages, comments, and all the information that we've received has helped evolve the platform. So, you know, had we started out with a seed round of a million bucks or three million bucks, you know, we would have done, I think, what most startups do, which is to build a bunch of tech, throw the quote-unquote proverbial spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks, and then spend a lot of money in advertising. And guess who exactly. wins that game? It's the developers, and it's Google, and it's Facebook, and so on and so forth. So yeah. I have my take on it, and I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, I think, um, again, it's, there's like three things that show that you're not a dreamer. You're somebody that's actually executing, and that is getting people to pay for the product is a number one. The others are 
investment in and uh, a working product, of course. But I think, you know, in the end, people can have an opinion, is it good or not good? But if people are buying it and they're buying it in significant numbers, people have to change their opinion. It almost becomes irrelevant. It, it stops being a valid opinion because customers who are actually the target audience are interested. And that's always a bit tricky with investors, I must say, because sometimes an investor just doesn't like it. There's nothing you can do. They're human beings as well. But when you've got sales and if you can generate revenue and you can fund yourself for at least some period with actual sales, that's the best situation, actually. And then you build a base to go to an investor and say, hey, we've built this through funding through revenue. We know people love this. Now we want to get bigger. Let's do it together. I think that's a great pitch. I agree. So speaking of pitches, so take us through the process. I mean, what is the perfect pitch deck and the perfect pitch? I mean, there's a lot of blogs. There's a lot of information on this. One of my, I think, probably my top three favorite ones. Number one is the Airbnb pitch deck, which is, it's, yep. been, it's become open source. People can find it. If you just Google that, you sure. will find it. Um, the other one that I really love is called, um, it's called like edible or I think it's like something about air. It was, it was kind of a parody at a, at a VC conference where this gal goes up and she just talks about how she's going to sell flavored air from all over the world. And it's absolutely it's hilarious. Too. I'll, I'll have to send it to you. It was a total that. parody, but you learned so much from it. Well, I think the error that a lot of people make in business in general and startups in, included is going straight into the software and starting to write slides. And my advice is always leave the software aside. Doesn't mean that you're not going to make slides, but it's it, that's that's a later part of the process. The starting point is to think, well, who am I pitching to? What am I trying to achieve? And uh, what do I want these people to do as a result of this pitch? And that's always slightly different depending on who you're, you're pitching to, where, where you're pitching. Mm. Then the third thing is once you've got the audience objective crystal clear, then instead of starting to write slides, get some post-it notes out and start brainstorming and get your thoughts out of your head. See, we think we should take our thoughts and jam them into the software. And it doesn't work, actually. So whether you use PowerPoint, Keynote, Prezi, or whatever tools are out there, um, and there's a whole proliferation of, of replacements for PowerPoint. You know, there's a company called Pitch.com that's, that's been heavily funded recently in Germany, uh, 50 million investment. And, and all of these PowerPoint alternatives, I feel, are fundamentally flawed because the starting point is not, do I make slides good or not? It's, well, what's my story? audience objective and get the, the the thoughts out and i've created a thing called the pitch canvas which is a, a set of 11 blocks of content that people can brainstorm on so a simple statement of the change that you're bringing the problem the solution the demo uh, what's unique traction business model team investment uh, why you a full good clear call to action at the end so these are things that people can brainstorm on and once they get all their thoughts out then they can start to organize their thoughts into a storyline. Once they organize them into a storyline, then you can see the beginning, the middle, and end. And if you do it with uh, post-it notes, it's, it, it's really great. It's, it's analog. It's just think, write, done. And then you can just move stuff around. Once you have a storyline in post-its, then you can start to build your storyline in slides. And then the great thing is you'll save a load of time because all you think about is what will the slides look like to support this story, not what should I say? And is this type going to be 32 point or 36? And these two kind of 
decision processes happening at the same time. They cause a lot of time. Um, but separate out what's the story. Pitch Canvas is a great tool to do that, and then make the slides. Then once you've done that, you then need to think about, uh, well, what do I actually do when I pitch? Do I think or do I talk? And most people think they're pitched through, but you can't think yourself into a great pitch. You have to talk yourself into a great pitch. So saying things out loud and getting feedback is really important. Uh, so I'm a big fan of think it through, write it down, say it out loud, get feedback. And uh, especially for the opening, the three big things in the middle and the closing. Um, these are things that need to be just rock solid. So in short, it goes audience objective, then brainstorm with post-it notes, then get a really good opening. Just focus on the key elements. Don't over explain and have a clear closing with a call to action and make sure that you're verbalizing the whole thing, saying things out loud. And this method, there's nothing really rocket science in it, but this is the way that I've been coaching people for the last six years. And uh, yeah, it's had a lot of great results and people are always relieved when they find this method because it, it takes a stress out actually. Uh, everybody can do this process. Everybody can make a great pitch. Now you spoke at uh, a TEDx conference. What was that topic about? Yeah, so actually um, I've spoken last just recently about uh, introducing the in TEDx Amsterdam, they have an award for startups to pitch on stage at uh, TEDx Amsterdam. Um, I've now been invited just yesterday to speak at another TEDx event. And my subject there will be, why don't we teach young people public speaking before they become terrified of it? Because mm. I believe that this is, you know, this is one of people's biggest fears is public speaking. And people have to do it all the time. Now, if people find, say, math difficult, we teach them how to do that at school. But public speaking, we don't teach them. Now, in America, I think you get some help and you get some guidance. In Europe, you get almost nothing. I've asked people from all over the world, when was the first time you got public speaking training? And most people said either in their first or their second job or never. And that's a pretty amazing statistic. So I think it should be something that needs to be taught. And I've been trying that out. I've tried training 10-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 17-year-olds. And uh, the 10-year-olds was tricky. The 13-year-olds, they can learn real quick. With just a few hours of help, they can put together a great pitch. So that's my next talk at TEDx will be, you know, why don't we teach young people to do this before they're terrified of it? Because they'll need to do this again and again. And I have a seven-year-old daughter, four-year-old son. My seven-year-old daughter tomorrow is standing in front of the class, uh, kind of a show-and-tell thing. It's the first time she's doing that because we just moved house at this school. And we followed my method, and she's ready to go. So, yeah, can really help people uh, with their career if, uh, if they get this help early on. Well, I think it's it's a lost art, really. I mean, in the in the time of yeah. you know the, the great kind of thinkers of the Western world, the Socrates, Plato's, Aristotle, oration, yeah. oratory, this idea of rhetoric, you know, was prevalent, and that was a big part of the learning process. And I feel like yeah. over the course Absolutely. of history, I think that's been mitigated because then, of course, books came about, and we started digging our heads in books, which is amazing because we have access to all the information in the world. And then, of course, in the internet, that took it to the next level. But I feel like overall i feel like it is kind of a lost start and it's definitely not something that's taught yeah. in school someone has to have some sort of an affinity or they have to get lucky and then they need to find themselves in that situation and then they'll receive the affirmation and then a light 
on and say, hey, you have this talent. You should be in the key club. You should be in the debate club. You should be in yeah. class politics. And then all of a sudden, they become a quote-unquote speaker, which is the one out of 300 people. But I think to your point, I think it's, uh, it's critical that we all do it. Because guess what? In the business world, there's a couple of things that we all need to have. And that is the ability to understand data, the ability to, to communicate our ideas, to be good speakers, and the ability yeah. to harness creativity and to solve problems. These are kind of some key yeah. elements that I always connect to. So I think that's a yeah, great cause. Great. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really something I believe in. And, uh, you know, I think education has got a long way to catch up. And there's organizations that I love here in Amsterdam, an organization called the, uh, the Growth Tribe that's really focused on helping people to, with data science, artificial intelligence, understanding how data can, can, will be driving the future. And their basic principle is education needs to come and, and catch up. But I think the public speaking part is, uh, you know, it, it will only become more important because we're going to automate all this stuff. And then when we actually sit down together, that's going to be the precious time. Then we really need to make the, the absolute best of it. And if you look at how TEDx and so on has affected the way that people see public speaking, mm. that short communication of an idea that is so critical, and it will only get more critical in the future. Well, I think there's this two-part paradox that I think happens in public speaking. And I think the mm. first is that going back to data, when we go and do public speaking for the first time, whether we're 6, 7, 13, 23, or 83, mm. it doesn't matter. When we start to do it, because it takes a little bit of practice and because there's a technique that we have to follow, that the data, quote unquote, that we receive from people might be, well, okay, that's interesting, but you're not a pro <laughs> and uh, mm. you got work to do and you, you feel that because people are yawning or they're bored or on their, they're on their devices or they're yeah. even walking out, out of the door because they have something better to do. And I think that sure. unfortunately what happens because you know, humans just, we're always looking for affirmation. We're always looking for that kind of validation. You know, we take that as really kind of meaningful data that makes us move away from wanting to do that. I don't want to do public speaking because of yeah. how I felt in that room. I don't want to do public exactly. speaking because people didn't like my content. But I think what a lot of yeah. folks don't realize, and this is something that I'm definitely learning, is that you have to put in the time. And that when you actually yeah. put in the time, you create your technique, you find your voice, and then the data starts to get better and better and better. So it's almost the paradox here is that you almost have to ignore the data until you can actually get comfortable and then start listening to the data when you finally find yourself. Yeah, I coach that there's about 0.01% of people that can just stand up and go, ta-da, and it's great. <laughs> For the rest of us, it's, it's just work. It's just yeah. a load of work. And what I see that's my role is to try to shortcut the work to some extent. And, yeah. and there's no ultimate shortcut. There's no quick way to make a great pitch. But I think there's some things people can do, as I say, especially verbalizing stuff. What people a lot of the time do is that they think it through and they put all their thoughts into slides and they find out in real time, i.e. in front of the audience, that it's not working. And my goal is to get people to find that out in advance so that they say stuff out loud and then they think, hang on, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would I say that? Why would I say we're going to execute this high level strategic plan? Nobody says that. We're going to make it happen. That's what we're going to. OK, I'll say that, you know. So just getting people to verbalize stuff can shortcut the number of times you need to fail um, for the message to get through. 
And but I agree, you know, in the end, you can learn techniques and and so-called tricks and so on. I think people need a bit of experience and just to go through the process. You know, I've seen pretty amazing stuff with quite inexperienced people with just the right amount of of guidance. People have managed to to put together a basically professional pitch. You get to a higher level by doing it more and more and trying out different ways of doing it. But just getting organized, you know, finishing on time, for example, having a good opening, not starting with, hey, I'm really happy to be here and what a lovely location, blah, blah, blah. You know, getting people into the first sentence, make the first word count, having a clear finish, not a shrug of the shoulders and, well, I guess I'm done. You know, having a clear finish with a, a clear call to action and a thank you. The, these are simple things that can actually immediately elevate you into a, you know, the level of the professional. And people can do that very quickly. Getting to the next level, that, that's much harder. But uh, I believe people can jump to a good professional pitch with, with the right tools fairly quickly. Well, I mean, I think uh, to your earlier point, I think a lot of that is just sort of leaning into who you are, where you are, what you are, and why you are, and really yeah. putting your best story out there and being honest. Yes. You know, I think a lot of the times people try to front, they try to put on something that they're not. And uh, whether it's an investor pitch or whether it's a presentation and people can see right through it, I think vulnerability, I think, is is the solution to pretty much most of the problems for anything that, that is related to communication, putting yourself out there, definitely pitching, at least that's yeah. from my perspective. Actually, at uh, TEDx Amsterdam a couple of years ago, the first speaker stood up and honestly, the first couple of minutes of his talk were pretty horrible. And I, I was sitting there thinking, crikey, who? this guy up there and then he froze and it, it was just horrible and then he said oh god <laughs> and just out loud into the microphone the whole the 600 people heard him say that and he's just really burning on stage and the whole audience started saying hey don't worry you'll be fine go on and and the whole audience was totally on his side and suddenly the whole thing became really interesting yeah, you know, will this guy get back into it? And he did. And and suddenly his talk took a different dimension. And mm. it is interesting that that thing. I've had a few people who have frozen and then won pitch competitions. They won <laughs> it after freezing. And you think, well, how's that possible? And I think it's because, you know, in the end, we're just human beings. We screw up. And if we can recover from screwing up and we manage to keep it going, we love that. We 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 love somebody who recovers. I think it's something to do with the, um, you know, I, I'm a sucker for all those Rocky stories. And, you know, we love the, the person who, who comes back. So, yeah, it, it doesn't all have to be perfect. There's actually proof that an imperfect pitch is more effective than a perfect pitch. And why is that? Well, actually, Daniel Pink has, uh, he has a great book called um, To Sell is Human. And mm. he did some research on this. And he found that a perfect pitch, people don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely truth in that. So when people say, we've got all the answers, this is the best thing, it's, it's going to be great, you're gonna, all you're going to see is great stuff. I, I think people think, yeah, okay, you're a startup. There must be weaknesses. Why don't you tell me what they are? And I think the startup that says, look, this is what we've achieved. We've managed to achieve this. We've got a great team. Uh, th- these are the people. This is why we're doing this, what we believe in. Um, what we're going to need is 
we need to fill this gap because the, what we don't know about is X. So we need so-and-so to, to fill this gap. And then uh, we also learn from customers. There's one part of our product that is, is lacking. We think we can fix that. That's why we need your help. So I, I think those kind of messages are, are much more believable. They're much more plausible. And in the end, being certain about what you don't know and certain about what you need to improve, you know, that's the real world. Investors don't expect you to have all the answers on day one. They expect you to have an attitude to go find those answers. And they expect you to be able to, uh, uh, you know, to learn and develop over a period of time. So I think the the perfect pitch is uh, is a myth. Yes, you need to have a lot of good answers, but you don't have to have all the right answers. You need that learning attitude to be able to go find them. There's this old adage, I think, when it comes to investing and what investors ultimately are investing into at the end of the day. And there's this is probably a little bit outdated. There's probably a newer way to say this, but they're betting on the jockey, you know, yeah. not on the not on the horse. And I and I want to know yes. what the modern version of that is because there's there's definitely something <laughs> that's more modernized. But I think the point though is that people are investing in the people because any sophisticated investor knows that chances are any type of business, software, tech doesn't matter. I mean, it could be yeah. selling a, a new type of paper. Pivot is real, and yeah. that any business that is listening and getting feedback and understanding what optimized funnels and what optimized business models look like that are sustainable and viable and sensical and scalable, I think the realization is that you have to pivot. And the art of the pivot really is about figuring out one of the two or three general canons of what you're doing and then investing yeah. into that and sort of letting you know, the others go. So how can you kind of provide some tactical feedback on how businesses can pivot, know when to pivot, why they should pivot and when to not pivot? Well, I think the, the starting point is always uh, customer engagement and trying to find out from people really, firstly, what are they actually trying? What do they actually want to have fixed? You know, there's the classic mom test, uh, which is a great book for anybody who's trying to find out what, what customers are actually looking to solve. And um, what they need to look at is, you know, it, 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 is this a problem that actually needs to be fixed? Is this something that people uh, want to have uh, done? There's a, maybe you know this mom test thing. If you ask your mom, do you want, an, if I make an app with recipes on the iPad, would you use it? And, and she will say, yeah, of course, no problem. I'd love to have that. Great, go ahead and do it. And, you know, that doesn't work because, you know, it's, you're six months later, you'll make that app and she will be sitting there cooking with the cookbook open in print. And then you'll say, why, why aren't you using my app? Because, yeah, it's just I like to use books. And the, the basic principle is that people people actually don't tell you what they want in the future. They, just, they can describe to you effectively how have they solved problems? How did they look to solve problems? What, what was it that they addressed in the past? And how did they, uh, how did they do that? So I think that the first task is really to make sure that you understand from a customer point of view, what actually are you fixing? Which parts of your product do they like? Which parts of your product don't you like? Don't they like? And that will point you towards the, uh, the pivot. Yeah, well, it's definitely an art. I mean, there's a lot of books on this. There's a lot of books. Yeah. 
you know, and uh, I mean, and then again, you know, books, that's a whole nother conversation, you know, reading books about sure. entrepreneurialism. That, that's another funny thing. I, you know, I say this, I, I feel like I'm allowed to say this because I have a master's in entrepreneurship along with a master's right. in finance. <laughs> and for those of you out there that are considering getting a master's in entrepreneurship or even a master's in business, you know, strongly consider what your ultimate goal is. Uh, because, you know, the best <laughs> thing for business is to do businesses. I mean, that's the whole idea, Indeed, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you learn a lot also from the, the study. I, I, yeah, I see that there's benefits yeah. in both. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, getting absolutely. into action networking, is ultimately the best way. It's it's true, yeah. It's true. A lot yeah. of the things that I was not able to accomplish in undergrad, I was able to accomplish in graduate school academically and socially. There's a lot of great experiences yeah. that I had, so... I'm not not to knock that, but I think that um, there's a lot of time in the day, and I think that sacrifices are the key to anything good or worthwhile, especially when it comes to being creative, doing a side hustle, having a business. I think it's really important to realize that um, Friday nights, Saturday nights, you know, week weekday nights. I mean, switch up your schedule. There's a lot of content out there that you don't need to consume. There's a lot of TV shows. There's a lot of things that waste our time. And I'm always about, sure. you know, getting the maximum amount of value um, with the minimal amount of input. And I think that uh, there's a lot to, that, that can be done, you know, if, if there's focus, of course. Indeed. So you, you have, a, have a business that helps businesses. And I'd love to kind of share the contact information, how people can get in touch with you, if there's any value yes. that you have. Um, I understand that you've also written a book. Um, you have some yes. original content. So please guide us on where we can find you. Sure. So the, the best place to find out more is at my website, which is best3minutes.com. That's the word best, the number three, and then minutes.com. And there's also a page called best3minutes.com slash free. So there's various free resources there. Um, I have a, an app with a lot of content on it. I have the pitch canvas, which you can get for free. And there's some videos and some other bits and pieces there. Um, and uh, the pitch canvas especially is being downloaded 250 times a week uh, by entrepreneurs around the world. And that's a good starting place. Um, but if you just go to my website, best3minutes.com, you'll find the pitch canvas. Uh, I've written a book called Pitch to Win. And uh, that's really packaging my first six years of doing this job and packaging all the tools, the exercises, the things that people can actually do to improve their pitch. Um, and that's on getting the story straight, designing great slides and delivering it well. Uh, so those are good places to, to get started. And there's, you know, I love to share what I've learned. I like to give some stuff for free. If that's enough for people, then great. Then uh, go ahead and, and, and do that. Uh, if people need more, then they can find uh, more on my website. Amazing. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. And, Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it. Great and I learned a lot. Good to hear. Thank you so much, David. All right. Take care. Ciao. Nice to talk to you.